Hello, and welcome to Building My Own Box. My name is Bryce, and I'm your host for today. Um, before I get started, I just want to say that this is the first podcast I've ever done, so just take it easy on me. Um, it might not sound the best, or it might not have the best content, but I'm trying. So, if you listen to the trailer for this podcast, it may seem a little bit unclear or ambiguous what I'm actually going to be talking about. Um... But really, what I'm going to be talking about is just things that interest me. I'm going to explore topics that interest me, hopefully at a little bit deeper than face value. Um, I just want to give some more in-depth analysis to the world around me. So I'm going to start doing that today, and I'm going to start by talking about dating apps. Dating apps are the most recent evolution in online dating. Apps like Tinder, Bumble, and Hinge have really quickly taken over the dating scene. Personally, I've been single for the better half of about two years now, so I find myself spending a considerable amount of time on all three of these apps. Um, but at the same time, I've always felt kind of at odds with these apps in general just because like, if the app is making money off of me, I have to assume that they want me to keep using it, right? I mean, just as a general rule of thumb on the internet, I like to believe if the service is free, the product is me. So for Tinder, Bumble, and Hinge, there's a lot of direct incentive for each of these companies to keep me on as long as possible. They're making money off of me one way or another. Um, really, all three of them do it the same way. Um, they use targeted ads uh, in their freemium business model. For those of you that don't know, um, a freemium business model is basically a service where the base service is free, and it's usually supported through things like ad revenue. And then all of these services and most freemium services offer a tiered membership where you can pay more and get more benefits out of it. So in this example, like Tinder Plus and Tinder Gold would be premium memberships to Tinder, which is by default a free service. So yeah, that's how they make their money. Um, and unfortunately, you know, something that I don't want to admit, but I will definitely admit, is that I have paid money to some of these apps. And I know a lot of people are pretty quick to judge, but I just want to say I'm just like everybody else, and I just want to meet somebody, um, you know. I just want to find someone, have that connection, you know, find that companionship, and live my little happily ever after. So, you know... I definitely regret the money that I've spent on these apps because over the course of about two years and probably, if I had to guess, about $40, I've still gone on exactly zero dates. So the first thing I want to do for each of these companies, uh, you know, Tinder, Bumble, and Hinge, I want to go through their mission statements. I know that we kind of always see them as these apps, like that's all we ever experience in them as, but it's important to remember that these are companies, they employ hundreds if not thousands of people probably. Um, and for me, uh, I just finished my degree in international business. So a mission statement to me is a natural place to start when trying to assess these companies. Um, it's just kind of like a mission statement. Every company should have one, not every company does, but it's basically kind of how I would describe it as like a company justifies their existence through this statement. They basically <clears throat> give all the best reasons that um, they should exist as a product or a service for you to purchase. And most of the time it's aligned through like a marketing principle where they're matching what you need with what they provide. So it's not 
too complicated to understand. Um, but I think that, you know, another thing mission statements do is they give the first glance into a company's corporate culture and they really give breadth to like what the product or service they provide is actually trying to do. So I think it's really important to look at these just to get the justification of what the underlying motives of all of these companies actually are. To me, Tinder is the company to start with. Um, it is like the most synonymous with dating apps in this day and age. Um, it's just, it's such a big app and it's like my demographic uses it a lot. So um, for those of you unfamiliar with Tinder, it is effectively an app centered around a simple swiping mechanic. Users swipe right on users they want to match with and they swipe left on users that they don't want to match with. Users can put pictures in their profiles and they can add a short bio to describe themselves to potential matches. Um, it's just kind of, it's kind of the benchmark that every other dating app holds itself to, in my opinion. So yeah, I found Tinder's mission statement on gotinder.com and it is, Tinder makes being single more fun and rewarding by connecting people who may have not otherwise met in real life. We celebrate that being single is a journey and a great one. Being single isn't the thing you do unhappily before you settle down. We stand up for how a whole generation chooses to live their lives. I have to say, for me, this is incredibly fascinating. For years now, I feel like I have had to try and defend Tinder to people. I've had at-length conversations with people trying to explain that Tinder is absolutely a dating app at its core, and despite its reputation and connotation it has as a hookup app, it's just the connotation and it does not absolutely reflect the company itself. And frankly, reading that mission statement kind of turned my opinion on its head. Tinder really seems to play with its reputation as a hookup app to its advantage. And while it's interesting, it makes sense if you really, really think about it. In a little bit, I'm going to talk about a study I found about Tinder user behavior. But the reason Tinder's ambiguous mission statement makes sense to me is because the hookup culture is probably more appealing to male users. I really do think that men are more likely to spend money on all of these apps, and by keeping it vague, Tinder isn't really promising them anything, but rather hinting at that possibility. And honestly, I think that possibility is enough for a lot of people, a lot of men, to open their wallets. And I think when we get into the study a little bit later, you'll see and hopefully kind of agree that um, by keeping it vague, Tinder continues to bring an income for themselves by uh, hinting at the male fantasy. Next up is Bumble. For those of you who are not familiar with Bumble, it is very similar. It has an almost identical swiping mechanic. You swipe right on the people you do want to match with and left on the people you don't want to match with. You put up pictures, you can write a little bio, and you can also indicate like more absolute little facts about yourself. Um, you know, that can be religious preferences. If you drink, you know, like, do you drink at all? Do you drink socially? Do you drink all the time? Um, you know, do you do recreational drugs? Do you prefer dogs or cats? Just stuff like that. Um, and the one big catch with Bumble is if you're using it as a heterosexual person, 
on the dating portion of the app, girls have to message first. What I didn't know before researching this was that Bumble actually has a really solid reasoning behind this. Um, so yeah, let's talk about it. Bumble's mission statement, and I found this on Comparably.com, says... Bumble is a platform and community that creates empowering connections in love, life, and work. We promote accountability, equality, and kindness in an effort to end misogyny and rewrite archaic gender roles. On Bumble, women always make the first move. So yeah, Bumble is apparently trying to tackle gender norms by forcing women to make the first move. And frankly, it's just not what I expected, and I have to be honest and say that I've never thought about Bumble's women-talking-first mechanic as a tool to empower women. But here we are. I will say, though, when I've talked to my friends that are women, it's not something they're particularly fond of. In fact, most of my friends that are women have said they prefer online dating apps where they don't make the first move. I think Bumble's really well-intentioned with this mechanic, but generally speaking, I don't think anyone really likes to make the first move on dating apps. I know I don't. So, you know, I'd rather a woman make the first move. So I suppose Bumble may be like Tinder in that it seeks to entice men to use it because they assume men are more likely to spend money on the app. But I really don't know. I think that a lot of people just are intimidated by the prospect of meeting a stranger on one of these apps and the men that reach out really quickly and first, um, they're just trying to, you know, put themselves out there, which is respectable. And I think I can respect women doing the exact same thing on these apps, but I just don't know anyone that really loves making the first move. I guess, you know, if you, if you're more of a player type, you might, but I'm definitely not. So it's not for me. And that brings us to Hinge. Hinge is the third one I want to talk about. It's relatively new compared to Tinder and Bumble, and it works radically different from them. Instead of a swiping mechanic, Hinge at a glance appears to want to connect users more. You put your pictures up, and instead of a bio, Hinge has these little prompts for you to fill in or answer for yourself. So like one example would be, there's a prompt that says, I'll brag about you to my friends if, and then you finish the phrase basically. So like for me, it says, I'll brag about you to my friends if you speak a second language because I am fascinated and would you know love to have a partner that speaks a second language I think that's cool so when you're using hinge um, you don't swipe on the people at all like they have a little X in the bottom left hand corner of the screen and you can just hit that if you don't want to match with the person but then instead of swiping right or you know hitting a heart to like them, broadly speaking, each part of the profile has a little heart. So like each individual picture you can like or each prompt you can like. And with that like, you have the option to send a message to that person if you want to start the dialogue immediately. I think for a lot of people, it's probably the best way to go just because like you're putting yourself out there more and like you're just kind of indicating right away, you know, where you think you click with that person. So in my experience, you know, it's a lot more thoughtful uh, when you're going to match with somebody. You have to think about why you actually like them, and the prompts just make the dialogue more possible. One of my favorite examples I've ever heard is from one of my friends who used the app. She filled in after, let's debate this topic with, 
is a hot dog a sandwich? And if my memory serves correctly, she said that a lot of people actually wanted to debate it with her. Um, and for those of you that are curious, she said a hot dog is a sandwich. I don't think I personally agree with that, but I'm just going to let her be wrong for right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so just looking at Hinge, it's really different from Bumble and Tinder. Although Bumble has since added prompts similar to the ones found on Hinge, albeit they haven't stolen that core mechanic. Like on Bumble, you still swipe right for the whole profile. So I guess the idea there is that it does drive that dialogue, but I think Hinge gives more qualitative information to its users because it forces users to like respond to the same prompts. And I think that can be more telling about people maybe than just giving people a blank space to say who they are. Like, because you know, you're basically in Tinder and Bumble, you're putting your elevator pitch in your bio. You're just saying like, here I am, I'm fun, I'm educated, you know, like talk to me. I, I don't know, like stuff like that. And with Hinge, you know, because people are responding to the same questions, it's kind of like answering a question on an open-ended test where you have insight into their thought process based on how they answer the question. So, yeah, I think that can be more telling because if someone responds to one of your prompts and they send uh, an answer similar to something that you would say, you can kind of connect with them and realize that they might be more like you than other people that have tried to match with you on it. So what is Hinge's mission statement, you might ask? Hinge's mission statement says, In today's digital world, singles are so busy matching that they're not actually connecting, in person, where it counts. Hinge is on a mission to change that, so we built an app that's designed to be deleted. And I find this super interesting. As Hinge takes a big leap of faith here, assuming that there will be a steady enough stream of users to keep the platform alive. And, you know, for what it is, I really think that uh, it's a pretty safe assumption. I mean, odds are, as the world continues to globalize and develop, there will be more and more people that have access to smartphones that can access this platform. And... Um, just in general, as we turn to the internet more and more in the 21st century, I think more people will be open to dating online. So I think it's a pretty safe bet. Um, but you never know. Additionally, there's always going to be a group of people in that 18 to 35-year-old bracket and beyond looking for a connection. So it's pretty safe. I think the real reason Hinge's approach seems so bizarre is because it would appear that they aren't at all predatory in their approach, whereas Tinder and Bumble both have pretty different agendas, I would say. So I've been thinking, you know, I don't know if I've ever actually seen an ad on Hinge. I know they have a freemium model like Tinder and Bumble, but I'm not exactly sure where they're making money. So I've decided to kind of take to reading the terms of service. And I gotta say, like, Hinge and my little bit of research seems like a pretty ethical company. But I am actually more confused the more I research it as well because Hinge and Tinder are both owned by the same parent company, which is The Match Group, a.k.a. Match.com. So, you know, reading through, it does turn out that Hinge is 
making its money like everyone else. Their privacy policy does in fact state that they use your information for targeted ads. So, you know, they basically take all sorts of stuff. They'll take your location, your age, your gender, you know, I guess even casual interest in a lot of circumstances. They, they know a lot about you. So another thing I found was an article from The Verge talking about the match group buying Hinge. And the notable thing they mentioned in the article is that Bumble is the one big dating app not owned by Match. Um, so, you know, when you're thinking of signing up for a dating app or website, there are a lot of Match group apps and websites. There's Tinder, Hinge, Match.com, OkCupid, and Plenty of Fish. And then Bumble is owned by itself, but the founder of Bumble is one of the co-founders of Tinder, and there's apparently, there has been or is an ongoing lawsuit about intellectual property theft on Bumble's part. So, you know, there's those two companies. And then I guess the third option, if you're looking to date outside of those two big app groups, is Facebook dating. And Facebook is not my cup of tea. I I think Facebook is probably one of the biggest threats in today's society to just everything. But, you know, if you can meet your loved one on Facebook, more power to you, I guess. Just glancing at Bumble's privacy policy, though, you're in the same boat with all of them, really. They reserve the right to collect your information. They collect information on your demographics, so your age group, your sex, religious affiliation. They track your geographic location as much as you allow them to, and then they collect your usage information, so they identify the device you're using the service on, the duration of time you spend on whatever device you're spending it on, who you're communicating with, and then a lot of the time they also take external cookies, which are basically little nuggets of information that say, I've been to this website and this is what I looked at. So it's really just crazy to me. I mean, they're collecting all the same information that basically any giant social media company collects. But to me, it's somehow a lot more personal and worse of them to collect this information. I think it's because, like, at least in my opinion, people on these dating apps are considerably more vulnerable. Like, you're really putting yourself out there more than people generally do on social media. I know some people will put anything on Facebook, but like you're kind of opening up yourself to a different way that you think and you're trying to, you know, show what you're proud of about yourself. And when you do a lot of that, like it kind of covers up like what you might be insecure about. So I just feel like they can use what they know to figure out stuff about you that you don't necessarily want them to know. And I'm not saying that normal social media can't do that, but you know, like, it's a, it hits a little different when I start getting ads for weight loss if I'm only taking headshots on Bumble. So that is what it is, you know? And you never know, like, do they know when your last relationship ended? Like, you know, the, like, the little details. Like, they might know more about your sexual preference than they even care to know. I just, I don't know. It's just feels a little grody to me. And, you know, this information is just way more powerful than anyone ever anticipates. A great example of this actually comes from Target. Um, 
we talked about this in one of my classes this past semester, and there's an article from Forbes talking about the uh, whole thing from 2012. An angry father went into his local Target to complain about his teenage daughter receiving ads for baby supplies. He was mad, thinking that it was Target, like, encouraging her to get pregnant to, like, I guess she must have been a senior because I think there's some uh, ethical concerns and some laws maybe preventing them from tracking children and marketing things directly to children. Um, but, yeah, so this guy was mad because Target was like, hey, you need some baby vitamins and you need to get some lotion and some unscented soaps and whatnot. And the dad was just like, Furious. I mean, I I get why. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Every family is a little bit different. So, but yeah, he was mad and he did not understand why they were getting these ads uh, because he, you know, she was in high school. He didn't think that she should be having a kid. So he complained to the manager at his local Target and then he went home and he actually talked to his daughter and it turns out she was already pregnant, and Target knew it before he did. Target had effectively utilized its existing data from already pregnant mothers' baby registries to create an algorithm that could accurately predict when an existing Target customer was expecting a baby. So they would take, you know, like baby shower registries, basically, and they would look at the things that women put on those registries, and then they use those to calculate like a pregnancy score, I think is what the article calls it, where they um, give a percentage out of 100 on how likely you are to be pregnant. And if you hit like, I think it's like something, I, I remember the article saying 87%. I'm not sure it's 87%. But if you get, if you're like over a certain percentage, Target will start sending out these ads for you and for baby products. And Target, I guess, freaked a lot of people out by doing this at first. So the article says that Target now doesn't send such highly targeted stuff, but instead they start, like, mixing in baby stuff with, like, your regular Target ads. So they didn't really stop. They're just doing it a little bit differently so people don't get upset. So, yeah, it's just, it's crazy. And, you know, for me, I think, you know, if Target can figure out who's pregnant based on women buying certain kinds of lotions and vitamins. I mean, just try to imagine, just try to fathom for a second what Big Brother Facebook knows about you. These aggregators of big data are incredibly powerful and influential. And they're really almost inescapable in a way. I mean, Match Group owns all the big dating apps. Facebook owns Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus, and a bunch of other companies. And as much as I feel like I'm an idiot admitting this, I didn't know that Match Group owned Hinge and Tinder until today. Those two apps combined probably know a little bit about me that my parents don't even know. Like seriously, data I provided to Hinge could be used to target me with ads on Tinder. And like the sad part is with Bumble and Facebook both participating in these markets, the quasi-monopoly that the Match Group has is basically untouchable. Like, for Congress to go in and break up a monopoly, they basically have to prove that there's only one company providing all of the services in an industry. So because Facebook and Bumble are in this market with the Match Group, it's more of um, 
an oligopoly and basically means our government is powerless to do anything about this. So aside from the obvious privacy concerns these dating apps have, they really change the way we think about our potential romantic partners and I think broadly how we think about people. In my opinion, Tinder has gamified dating culture, which isn't a huge secret, but it's creating a giant feedback loop that we need to talk about. Forever ago, I saw this factoid on Reddit. It was either in the Today I Learned subreddit or one of the news or technology subreddits. But it said on Tinder, women swipe right on the top 20% of men. Now, I have not, I repeat, I have not been able to find and verify this message again. But I did find an incredibly fascinating study done on the behavior of Tinder users back in 2016. The study is titled, A First Look at User Activity on Tinder, and was performed by Gareth Tyson, Vasil C. Perta, Hamed Hadari, and Michael C. Sito, and it was done uh, under the Queen Mary University of London. So, this group of researchers carried out the study in 2016 in New York City. They curated 14 profiles, seven men, seven women. And a side note here is that they were really setting out to study the behavior of heterosexual romantic interactions, but from what I read, they didn't limit who appeared to the opposite sex. So even though they were looking specifically for heterosexual interactions, like there was still same-sex matching occurring for these profiles, I guess. So what they did is they curated these 14 profiles, and to keep their profiles consistent, what they did was they used one headshot for each person that was a free stock photo. They specified that they didn't want to use multiple photos or show more than a headshot because they didn't want potential matches to infer anything about the background of the people these profiles were pretending to be. So they were doing that to prevent, like, socioeconomic status from interfering with the results of their study. And uh, another side note, like, all the people were also white people because they didn't want um, racial relations to affect the results of the study either. I guess that could, I mean, I believe it could skew the results. So, yeah, it makes sense. Um, and then... The last thing, they also didn't give their users a bio, which is crazy to me because if you put this all together, like if I see a stock photo with no bio, I'm assuming it's a catfish or a bot or something, but hey, to each their own. The study's profiles did end up getting a lot of matches, and I, they, I mean, they even had two profiles that had no picture, just a name, and then they also had two more saying... Uh, well, they had a photo saying that the account had been removed by Tinder and those even still got matches. So, hey, I mean, I guess having absolutely no photos does work for some people on these apps. The first interesting and problematic thing the research team uncovered, at least in my opinion, are the peak usage times of the app. The peak usage times they found for Tinder were 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., Notably, those are commute times, especially in a big city like New York where people have time to sit on a train. So to me, this really does indicate that Tinder is game-like for a lot of users, even if users don't consciously think of it that way. 
But if you seriously think about it, how is Tinder, and Bumble 2 in this regard, unlike a game? I mean, there's a central mechanic like any game has. Pac-Man has a mechanic where he eats ghosts. Tinder has a mechanic where you swipe right. It's literally like an arcade game. Tinder requires no prior experience to start, quote-unquote, playing. You load up the app, and once you've got your profile, you're good to go. Shoot, showing you an ad or two in the first minute of loading the app is probably even like putting a quarter in the machine. So yeah, that's the first part of this study that caught my eye. I also think that it's interesting that in the last year or so, Tinder started to offer its super boost during peak times, like the evening one, like mentioned, uh, that the study found. But I want to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. The next piece of information that caught my eye was the rate of matches made by these profiles across the two genders. Men matched with 0.6% of users they liked, whereas women matched with 10.5% of users they liked. That is such a huge difference. For every 100 users a man liked, he had a 60% chance of matching with one of them. That's wild. I mean, that's so crazy. It also explains a lot about men's behavior on these apps, though. If men only have a minuscule chance of getting a match, they have to like more profiles to get a match. So naturally, men are going to like as many profiles as they possibly can. I've even had my own friends tell me that in the past they just swipe right on all the women they either ignore or unmatch the ones they don't want to talk to. For me, I would have to say I make quick judgments, probably not spending more than 10 seconds on each profile, but I at least try to read the bios and go through the pictures. Um, it's still not really an accurate look or probably a fair depiction of most of these women I'm swiping on, but it's better than just swiping right before a profile loads and until you run out of likes, I guess. For women, 10.5% isn't too bad. That means for every 10 people a woman sees, she'll match with one or two maybe. So hey, that's, that's actually really not bad at all. But I think that it's also really, really important to consider the profiles that people were seeing here. I mean, a generic stock photo of a white person with no bio. I have to assume, and the study does support with more information later on, that more photos and more realistic profiles with bios help users get more matches. I just have to wonder, for the people that aren't as physically attractive as a stock photo model, how good are their odds? And, of course, I'm asking for a friend and not myself. Um, but yeah, the next set of stats provided are also something noteworthy, in my opinion. They talk about the initial messages sent following a match. 21% of women are likely to message a match first, and only 7% of men are. So, basically, like, women are three times as likely as men to send a message when they match with someone. Um... And the implication of this, of course, is that women are generally more engaged with their matches. And to me, this really shows that women go for qualitative matches with the understanding they're more likely to match with a potential partner, where instead men will go for quantitative results, trying to get as many matches as possible because they can't count on a meaningful interaction. And it also mentions the median message length, the median message length for women was 122 characters, and in men it was 12. <laughs> so, really, women are sending more and interacting more with the people that they match with. So I guess if anyone's using the app more like it's intended to, I guess it's probably women. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like gardening, women are doing their research and figuring out the ideal conditions to plant their seeds, and men are just planting as many seeds as possible, hoping one will grow. So for the section discussing the relevance of bios and pictures, they had volunteers submit their own profiles and then change them to monitor results. So what they did was like people volunteered their profiles and then they got the no bio, one picture treatment. And it actually did change a lot for each of them. The first thing they did was switch the profiles from one to three pictures. The female profile increased from 44 matches to 238. And then the male profile went from 14 to 65. And bios also make a big difference here. It said that men with a bio were four times as likely to get a match with a bio. Women also made a gain here, but because men weren't matching with so much to start with, like it's just a much more substantial increase for men to do these things. So I guess the takeaway here is like if you're not getting matches, you're not completely powerless to get more. Um, obviously adding photos and bios helps, but I have to say getting four times as many matches when you're matching with maybe one of 100 people to begin with isn't a lot, you know, like 0.6 times four, that's 2.4%. So that means you will likely match with two people out of a hundred, which is still really, you know, not great if you're trying to make a meaningful connection and you spend a considerable amount of time on these apps. And I think that's why these apps suck. Because they offer you ways to get more matches, but you're throwing absurd amounts of money at these apps to be able to like more people and to make your profile more visible to people. Like a great example is Tinder's, where they have Tinder Plus and Tinder Gold. They both let you use the passport functionality where you can place your profile anywhere in the world you want. So hypothetically, like a guy like me living in a suburb could get more matches by putting my location in a big city. Um... Or, you know, anywhere in the world, I guess, just that has more people living in it than my town. And the main difference between Tinder Gold and Tinder Plus is Boost. Tinder Gold has it and Tinder Plus doesn't. And the Boost functionality, like I talked about a little bit, well, I talked about Super Boost, but there's like Boost and Super Boost. So Boost makes your profile the number one viewed profile uh, in a given amount of time in an area. So basically, if you activate Boost, you'll be the first profile that people of whatever matching preference you have see when they set up the app. I have no idea how this plays out if there are multiple people activating Boost at the same time. I have to assume there are a lot of people doing that. Um, so they probably just put them in order as best they can from who activated it first, if I had to guess. So, you know, it makes your profile more viewed, but... When your odds are, like, astronomically low of getting a match, you know, just getting a match, not even getting a date, mind you, is it really worth it to buy these services? I have to say, no, it, it's not. It's really not. And I think it's borderline unethical to sell these features as if they're the key. Of course, being able to advertise to potential premium users that they're four times as likely to get a match sounds great, but you have to consider where you're starting at. And for the average person, it's probably not worth it. I honestly think it makes more sense to invest into something else to try and lead you to a relationship 
Like, it would seriously make more sense to go to a relationship coach or a matchmaker or sign up for that gym membership or enroll in college or therapy or something. Investing into yourself to raise your initial level of attractiveness has to be more effective. But all that being said, do you hear me? Like, do you hear how seriously messed up this sounds? I'm talking about attractiveness like it's a D&D stat. Each and every person on these dating apps has something to offer. I don't get a lot of matches, but I know I have something to offer. Shoot, I mean, I'm bilingual and I just finished my undergrad degree. That means something to someone out there. And that's really why these apps are just terrible. Like, each person on them is looking for something. They're, like, opening up their hearts, trying to find someone to connect with, exposing parts that they don't, you know, they don't show other people. They're really opening themselves up, putting themselves out there. And they just... You know, they're put into this game. They try to gamify these people. People are people. They're not points to be scored. The paid elements of these apps are like buying power-ups and Candy Crush. They may keep you ahead in the short term, but ultimately they just want you to keep playing the game. They want you to watch the ads. They want you to buy the premium services. They don't really care about their users, and I think it's fallacious to think they do it all. The silver lining to it is that there are plenty of people not on dating apps that want to date. The Pew Research Center uh, did a study in October 2019. It was published in February of 2020, I think, saying that the 18 to 29-year-old age group, 48% of people had used a dating app at some point. So less than half the people out there in this case, a group of roughly 4,000 people, have been on at some point. That doesn't mean they're all on now, and that leaves 52% of people in that age group that have never been on them ever. So there's a good chance you or I can meet somebody in real life. These apps are popular because they seem like a shortcut, whether that be to sex or a meaningful relationship, doesn't matter. And like a lot of things in life, they're just not. They're not shortcuts. They sound too good to be true, and they absolutely are. I get the appeal. I've been on these three apps for, you know, about two years, and I've spent actual real-life money on Tinder and Bumble, and I've still gone on zero dates. But instead of pondering what the hell is wrong with me, like I have been for over a year, I and a bunch of other people just have to realize that it isn't us. Much like a casino, these apps are set up so you can't win. And that's not my problem, and it's not yours. So I guess, really, what I'm trying to say here is that you're better off doing your own thing, whatever that means to you. Whether that's investing into yourself and improving upon yourself, or even just keeping the status quo until you actually meet somebody in real life. You can meet someone. The real test will be seeing if I actually get off of these apps now that I've looked into them more. I'd love to delete each and every one of them off of my phone and never see them again, but I guess probably until then they can keep draining my battery and using my data. So hopefully, you know, this has been informative. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Um, this is just, you know, the first episode, a small taste of my podcast. Um, and yeah, I've been Bryce and this has been Building My Own Box.